Hello and welcome to another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day. Today I am back with Art of the Deal Part 3, a series where I delve into some of art history's most key and influential art dealers within the history of the art market. And today I'm looking at someone who's actually better known for her collections rather than what she is known for her dealer status. But, in my opinion, she is no less influential in bringing our attention to some of the greatest names in abstract and surrealist art from Europe and America before, during and after the Second World War. That is right. Today, it's time to take a look at influential dealer and collector, Peggy Guggenheim. Now, you might have heard of the surname Guggenheim, or you might have indeed heard of Peggy Guggenheim. There's a lot of clout and instantaneous association with art which surrounds this name. But she's got a very interesting backstory and quite a sad one in places as well. For those of you that know her as a collector, I would say that she was actually a a dealer as well, but she didn't actually come to collecting art until a little bit later on in life, which of course, when you listen to the podcast, we'll get onto it. But um, Guggenheim is now associated with this incredible group of museums which are across the world, of course, the most famous being in New York. There's also the Guggenheim in Venice, which was where Peggy actually set herself up later in life and spent the remainder of her days. So it would be interesting to see if I have any sort of backlash of people coming back to me and saying, oh, she's not a dealer, but I would argue that she is and how she used her influence and her money and her connections really to help promote people. If that's not dealer worthy, then I don't know what is. Anyway, I will let you decide for yourself. So sit back and relax as I give you a very brief overview of the history of Peggy Guggenheim on my part three of the Art of the Dealer series. Okay, so I think it's very important to start by saying that Peggy Guggenheim, her name isn't actually Peggy. She was born Marguerite Guggenheim and was a collector, dealer and socialite who lived between 1898 to 1979. She was born to a wealthy family in America called the Guggenheims and she was the daughter of Benjamin Guggenheim who, with his family, had started a coal and steel business in America, which then Benjamin left to pursue other options in Europe. When he was in Europe, after a year, he decided to come back to America where he'd left his young family and decided to come back in style and booked a one-way ticket on the most glorious new transatlantic liner called the Titanic. And sadly, he perished on the Titanic in 1912 when it sunk. So, A very, very tragic beginning to Peggy's upbringing. I think she was only about 14 years old when she lost her father. But upon turning 21 in 1919, she inherited a fortune of almost two and a half million dollars, which when reading around for this podcast, it's sort of the equivalent to 36, 37 million pounds in today's money. So she was very, very wealthy, even in by 1919 standards. And why she is referred to as Peggy 
is because Peggy was her favourite name and she decided when she was a little bit older actually she was going to drop Marguerite and call herself Peggy. Now Peggy is known for promoting a group of artists that we now know as the Surrealists and Abstract Artists and she dedicated her life to collecting and promoting the works of artists that fell into either of these categories. But she didn't actually begin dealing and collecting art until a little bit later on in life. However, it was always an interest to Peggy, but she was actually, she favoured old masters, which if you'd listened to a previous podcast, old masters are the various sort of classical portraits of, sort of biblical scenes and heroes and just kind of scraping the barrel as portraiture there. So the idea of collecting surrealist or abstract paintings at this time were still very looked on as a very odd thing to do. Anyway, I digress ever so slightly. So she inherited a massive fortune in 1919 and in 1920 undertook what is known as a grand tour of Europe, which is kind of like a must do for any sort of wealthy young Americans and met and fell in love with her first husband in Paris in 1920. And this is a gentleman called Lawrence Vale. Now, he was seven years older than Peggy, but was completely besotted by him. And she lovingly referred to him as the King of Bohemia. And he was Oxford educated, but very artistic. He sculpted, he did collage, he wrote poems. And more importantly, he had an incredible group of avant-garde writers, thinkers and artists. And through Lawrence Vale, she met the likes of Man Ray, who would eventually photograph her countless times, as well as becoming friends with art historical big leagues such as the artist Constantine Brancusi and Marcel Duchamp, who was a friend and artist who she would eventually go on to promote within her collection and when she dealt. But it was not long until her marriage broke down through a couple of very tragic life events. In 1927, her favourite and eldest sister died in childbirth. In 1928, her other sister lost her two children. Her beloved Lauren started drinking. So the marriage was doomed. But in 1929, she met and fell in love with a gentleman called John Holmes and moved to Saint-Tropez just to go back to say that she'd been living in Paris with Lawrence Vale for the majority of the 1920s when they met, fell in love and married. So in 1929, she met John Holmes and they moved to Saint-Tropez and that was the same year that her marriage to Lawrence fell apart and she was granted a divorce. Now it wasn't a happy ending there for Peggy either. In 1934, John, during a routine operation to reset a broken arm, he was administered anaesthetic and unfortunately he never woke up again. Anaesthetic at the time was, was very, very new. So she had a very tragic 20, 30 years of her life were immensely, immensely sad. And in 1937, she was 39 and she arrived at a crossroads and she decided... I kind of need something to do and it was her friends that suggested that she opened a business. So having a very wide and loving interest of art she decided she would open an art gallery. So she moved to London and opened her gallery. Now it's important here to bring in that Peggy when moving to London had met the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett who was actually a massive influence on Peggy and when he entered into her life they kind of saw themselves as kindred spirits in a way. Beckett wrote about his very sort of miserable upbringing in Ireland and it sort of helped 
soothe Peggy in a way with her sort of very tragic upbringing until this point and yeah like I said just kind of found sort of kindred spirits within their misery and their tragic upbringings but it was Samuel Beckett that said to Peggy when she said she preferred old masters Beckett is quoted as saying art is a living thing and he influenced her very much to look at contemporary artists that spoke to her and it was through Beckett that Peggy, while in London, Peggy was introduced to a wide circle of contemporary artists of the day. So Peggy opened her gallery in London and within a year and a half of the gallery space opening, it became known as the place to go to see the most avant-garde and contemporary works of the day. Financially, was it a success? No way. But was she having a good time? Absolutely. You have to remember Peggy Guggenheim was an incredibly wealthy woman at this time so really the idea of turning a profit wasn't at the forefront of her thoughts. It was more an exercise in learning and allowing her to develop a love for an art form, i.e. contemporary art, that she really hadn't looked at before, having already said this. She preferred the old masters, which of course in no way a surprise having come from a very established family with wealth. Anyway, during this time in London, she approached art historian and famous art critic Herbert Reed, who at the time was the editor of an art magazine known as the Burlington Magazine, which actually still runs today. And Reed was trying really, really hard to promote contemporary art and Peggy offered him a job as the director of her gallery in London and he took it. But it was during this time that she kind of realised people weren't coming to her gallery to purchase works. They were coming to look and she kind of had this conversation with Reed about was her gallery actually a gallery or was it more of a museum? And this is where historians seem to think that the idea for her beginning to form her collection really sort of kicked off. Anyway, World War II was brewing and Peggy decided that London was no longer safe. So she returned to Paris. She decided to seek counsel in the artist Marcel Duchamp. As Duchamp was an incredible free spirit, but he was a much sought after authority on contemporary art and he introduced her to a humongous range of artists that we now know and associate with abstract and surrealist. And this was where her very famous motto came in, buy a picture a day. And some of the artists that she collected are the big leagues such as Duchamp himself, Brancusi, Salvador Dali and Man Ray. And even in 1940 when the Nazis began to invade Paris this did not put Peggy off. Even though Peggy came from a Jewish background she still stayed in Paris even when the Nazis invaded. And it actually in some way played into Peggy's favour because a lot of artists and dealers were delighted to sell to Peggy before fleeing Paris for safer ground. And there's a great account of Alberto Giacometti who, I don't know if he still holds, but he holds one of the highest auction records for a sculpture. So it's something like a hundred and, I think it's a hundred and twenty odd million dollars for one of his walking men sculptures and she met Alberto Giacometti before he fled Paris during the war and she used this as an opportunity to bargain over prices which might sound like taking advantage of a bad situation which of course it is but I also think it shows that she had a very good business head on her. Anyway, Duchamp had helped Peggy compile this list of artists which she felt would be the ultimate abstract and surrealist collection and she made it her personal mission to begin working through the list one by one and she did a really good job 
and collecting at least one painting and or sculpture by every artist on the list. But a name on the list which she did not own yet was Picasso. And there's this great story where Peggy in the 1940s went to visit Picasso in his studio and he very much rubbed her up the wrong way. Picasso was always surrounded by admirers and lovers and people, he was a very famous artist in his day and I don't think he took very kindly to this lady sort of shuffling around his studio looking at this, looking at that, perhaps trying to bargain on prices and apparently, this is from her memoirs, that he turned to her and said, ma'am, you're in the wrong location. Ladies lingerie is on the second floor. Which, safe to say, she did not buy a work from Picasso that day. She very quickly left after he had insulted her. Which I think also just gives you a very good insight into Picasso and just how arrogant this man was. But again, I've spoken about that on a on a previous podcast, so I shan't, um, I shan't repeat myself. Anyway, now I think it's important here to remind you that this was 1940. This was just as World War II was really kicking off and Paris was becoming less and less safe for people. And you have to remember, Paris at this time was considered the centre of the art world. There was a lot of artists. There had been an influx throughout the 1920s, 1930s, and it really was this cultural hub of Europe, but it was no longer safe. And this is where a gentleman called Varian Fry enters into the picture. And he was actually sent from America to help extract artists that were in danger of being handed over to the Nazis in France. And he initially went over with a small sum of money and a list of about 200 names of artists that he had to track down and try and find a way of getting them safely out of France. And very, very quickly, that list escalated to nearly 2,000 names. And of course, his money wouldn't stretch. So the obvious solution for him was to contact Peggy Guggenheim and say to her, please, can you help in some way? Now, Peggy had already been warned of this endeavour by the American consulate in Paris and had been warned to stay far away. But when Fry approached Peggy and asked for her help, she replied, of course, what can I do? And she ended up meeting Fry in Marseille, where he had rented a villa. And this is where she comes across the artist Max Ernst. Now, it was Peggy's money which helped a lot of artists escape France and have safe passage to America, but not just the artists themselves, their family, but also their their entire contents of their studio in some cases as well. Works that had been finished and works that had not. So she really was somebody that used her wealth in a very, very powerful and important way. And I think this is something that's completely overlooked with Peggy. If you know anything about her, and I'll get onto it a little bit later on, she's kind of an, an art dealer and art collector that's known for having these very sort of wild love affairs and love triangles. And for me, I just don't think it's important, but I'll get onto that in a minute. So she goes to Marseille, Hart and Fry use her money to extract these artists, one of them being Max Ernst. And Peggy actually falls madly in love with Ernst and is quoted by saying, he is so beautiful, so talented, and so famous. So in 1941, she and Max Ernst came back to the USA. They came back to New York and they married and moved into a townhouse and Peggy set up a studio for Max to work. Ernst had already gained a reputation and was quite popular in America from a previous sort of little tour that he had done before World War II. As well as helping countless other artists, including Max Ernst, escape, one of the other artists, which is of note that Peggy Guggenheim helped and provide safe passage to America, 
is an artist called André Breton, and Breton was a French writer and poet. He's best known as the co-founder of the group of artists known as the Surrealists or Surrealism. So he was an incredibly important artist in himself and art historically as well. And there's a really fantastic letter which Peggy kept from Breton, and it says, I have certainly not forgotten New York, nor Marseille at the turn of the 1940s, when I was able to escape thanks to you. It is, of course, one of the most important dates of my life, and I never think without emotion that everything depended on your generous intervention. For me, this is something that I find is quite incredible about Peggy Guggenheim, is that she helped so many people escape, and yet, well, perhaps it's me because I hadn't really sort of read into her a horrendous amount. This huge, amazing, selfless act that she that she did is overshadowed by so many other non-important things, i.e. her whole of fiery sex drive and her sort of love affairs, which really shouldn't even touch the sides in terms of importance when you think about how many lives she saved and not only lives, but how much art she also saved by allowing these people to bring the contents of their studio. Anyway, I digress. Peggy arrived back in New York in 1941 with Max Ernst and she opened a gallery in New York and called it Art of the Century and began showing Ernst's works as well as other abstract artists and surrealists as well. Now, as I've said, the art gallery was called Art of the Century and this is where I think she really, in my opinion, she really earns her stripes here because she is not afraid to stand out from a crowd and here's why. So... So when she moved back to New York, she set up her gallery, which was on the seventh floor of a building in New York. So she had no street frontage and she knew she needed to create a space that would get people talking. And so she hired a set designer and an architect called Friedrich Kriesler to create a striking new look for her gallery. And can I just say, he delivered. He broke the gallery space down into two rooms, one for abstract and one for surrealist. Now, I need you to close your eyes here. In the abstract room, he created undulating walls which were coloured blue. Works were hung from the ceiling on wire constructions but never shown in a frame because frames, in Peggy's opinion, were a society construct meant to confine art and Peggy just wouldn't allow it in her gallery. Another finishing touch to this, the floor was painted turquoise. Why turquoise? It was Peggy's favourite colour. Simple as that. There'll be some images linked on my website to this incredible space. It really is. Even I think if you walked into a space like this today, it would get you talking. An Instagrammable moment before Instagram was even a dizzy daydream. Anyway, the Surrealist Room was even more bonkers than the Abstract Room. So for the Abstract Room, he created this beautiful wooden concave wall. So walls that sort of carve in the whole way down the gallery. And all the artworks were hung on wooden rods which stuck out from the wall. And the best part, which I think is genius, is that he installed a lighting system which changed every 30 seconds to place a new work in the spotlight. And no surprise, the gallery became the talk of the town. People would flock there, not just to see the art, but to experience being in this space. And 
I think in showing this, what was considered quite strange art in a very strange environment, I think it really just helped set the scene to really understand these pieces and spark a love and affection with them. And I also just think it shows how fearless Peggy was as a dealer and how she knew, okay, these are new, exciting, way out there things. And in order to get noticed, I'm going to have to get people talking. And to me, if that doesn't cement her as a fantastic business-minded dealer for her groups, because she was selling these things, yes, some of them were for her collection and sometimes things weren't for sale or sometimes she would like trade up uh, or sort of trade pieces with other dealers, but people could still come and experience, even the work that wasn't for sale, they could still come and experience these things and in a way be influenced through the hype to purchase works from these artists for their own collections. And again, I think even when the works weren't for sale, this is again using her influence and her networking to really sort of seal the deal for these artists, which we now know as these incredibly avant-garde painters and thinkers throughout sort of the 1930s, 40s and 50s. But you may be asking, how did she decide on what, what she showed? And it's very simple. And I think it's something that any good dealer would tell you to do this if you're buying works to show in your home. As a, as a gallerist and as a dealer, she only showed works which she liked. And she also sought the counsel of her artists to recommend other artists within the scene that they think that she would really enjoy and that she would, that she could promote and this is a really good way of just networking almost, using artists to network within their networks where she would never potentially come across these people. And I think it's really important because it shows her she was not only a collector and a patron, but she introduced their works around the world to a new market who wouldn't have seen them before. And because of Peggy's reputation and her status as a collector, dealer and patron of the artists, her gallery became the place for any new up-and-coming artist to be shown in New York. And I just think that's this incredible full circle moment. I'm of course not forgetting the fact that she had an incredible amount of wealth behind her and never really had to consider what perhaps somebody like Paul Duran Ruel did or Joseph Devine. But she still took these very sort of bold, forward-thinking steps, regardless of the fact that she had this wealth behind her. And she practiced what she preached. She bought from these artists herself. And these are the artists which make up the majority of her collection. And I think that's a really important thing to remember when you're talking about Peggy Guggenheim. In 1943, so two years after opening the gallery, Peggy wanted to show the work of 31 women artists. And this, unfortunately, was kind of her undoing. She sent her husband, Max Ernst, to meet all of them for the show to select a piece, and he fell in love with Dorothy Tanning, who is a surrealist painter. And he chose this series, this painting rather, called Self-Portrait Series of Open Doors. And it's this very beautiful painting of Tanning, and there was an incredible exhibition of Tanning's work at the Tate a few years ago. But again, I'll leave a link to this image in uh, the description below. And in 1943, he left her. Now, Peggy wasn't too down about this. She was a new gal about town. In 1946, they divorced. Ernst moved back to Paris with Tanning. And in 1958, Ernst was awarded Parisian citizenship. 
and that was kind of it for Max Ernst. However, we're going back to 1943 when he left. Peggy was still very much, of course, reeling from Max leaving her, but she, you know, she had a business head on her and she had a job to do and she was incredibly passionate about the work that she was doing in New York and she teamed up with Clement Greenberg, who was an incredibly famous art critic, who helped endorse a new group of artists that were kind of coming up through the ranks which we now know today as the abstract expressionists and of course one of the biggest names within the abstract expressionist movement is Jackson Pollock and it was this twin engine of Greenberg and Guggenheim working together to show Pollock and promote him and write about him that really helped catapult Pollock um, to sort of the dizzying heights of success that he had in his very short and tragic life. Another artist within this group that Guggenheim was incredibly important at pushing and trumpeting for his success is Mark Rothko. So that's just two of the people that Peggy two massive names from within art history that Peggy has been influential in sort of pushing forward and she also worked with Alexandra Calder at this time as well who's an artist who makes these beautiful incredible kinetic mobile structures which hands down I think the the exhibition at the Tate that was there oh my goodness I think that was 2015 2016 they had a retrospective of Alexandra Calder's work and it blew my mind. It's the only exhibition I had to go back like four times to see it because it was just such an eye-opener. And if you've never heard of Alexander Calder, have a little look, have a Google. He is somebody that is just so, so incredible. Anyway, I completely digress. Despite success, Peggy's heart still belonged in Europe and she made the decision in 1947 to close her gallery in New York. She packed up all her collection and she sought to make a new start in Europe, and she chose Venice. And when she arrived in 1947, she was kind of just in time to be invited to the Venice Biennale, which is this huge art exposition which happens every two years in Venice and still happens to this day. And in 1948, she presented, she was invited and presented her collection in her own pavilion. So in and amongst the, the displays from France, from Italy, from the UK, there was also the Guggenheim collection. And this is where Peggy showed, really for one of the first time, these incredible works by the abstract expressionists of New York. So Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko, but also the surrealists and abstract artists that she had been championing since day one when she opened her gallery back in the 30s in London. Peggy completely fell in love with Venice and after the Biennale found this unfinished palazzo and bought it for almost nothing and spent the rest of her life sort of renovating it and making it into her own gallery which she would open to the public to show her collection. Now nothing was ever for sale when you came to view Peggy's works within her pavilion and it's still a place where you can go and visit today of course it's the Guggenheim in Venice but she really just it became this sort of safe haven for artists who sought solace in Europe and could come to Peggy, stay for a little while, she would buy their work, could help promote them. She was incredibly generous with her time and her funds 
And also, like I said, the public could come and visit the collection three days a week, which I just think is an incredibly generous thing to do to, again, all in the name of promoting these artists and to show that if someone with this standing and wealth believed in these artists and championed these artists, it really did have a knock-on effect to society when people were still doing their, their grand tours of Europe and the, the Guggenheim was a must-see stop on there to see what she had in her collection. And she continued to collect throughout the remainder of her life and her collection includes like I said Giacometti but also big names like Miro and Kandinsky it became this place of a pilgrimage for art lovers and really still is to this day upon her death in 1979 she left her home and her entire collection to the Guggenheim Foundation now the Guggenheim Foundation was actually is actually run and owned by her uncle Solomon Guggenheim who began the Guggenheim chain in the 1950s but Peggy's collection in Europe was really kind of the cornerstone of development. So while he was building the Guggenheim in New York, she had her palazzo in Italy and they could kind of twin up, if that makes sense. And there's now several of these Guggenheim museums across the world. So of course you have New York and you have the Guggenheim in Venice, of course. But there's also one in Bilbao and there used to be one in Berlin, but I'm fairly certain that has closed but more interestingly is that they're building one in Abu Dhabi at the moment, which is set to open in, I think, 2020. Another really important thing to note is Guggenheim actually never paid anything more than, I think, $40,000 total for her entire collection, which today is worth billions. And to me, again, if that doesn't cement her as an incredible dealer and patron and collector, then I really don't know what does. Um, I think she's an incredibly interesting woman and somebody who, I'm ashamed to say, I really didn't know too much about her. And I really only scratched the surface ever so lightly here with Peggy. She is someone who is such a huge character within art history and promoting art throughout sort of the sort of pre and post-war eras in Europe and America and just really sort of opening up an international art scene in a way by allowing people to, to view works from, you know, American artists in her palazzo in Venice. I think she's so, so clever. And what you may have heard of Peggy Guggenheim, like I very sort of briefly touched on, is that she's kind of ravaged in history as, as this hot-headed lustful vixen who really mixed art and sex together and you really couldn't sort of separate the two and I haven't touched on that because I just don't think it's important and in my opinion everyone was doing it it's just because she's a woman I think this is a very classic example of because she is a woman it's kind of flagged up as a oh she was a bit saucy because there's there's accounts that she she said that she slept with over a thousand men and you know Peggy was an incredibly good biographer of her own life and when she was alive she actually hired someone to write her autobiography and it's called Confessions of an Art Addict it's still available to buy today and I would highly recommend if, if you would like to know a little bit more about Peggy then it's only like six or seven pounds on Amazon and I would thoroughly recommend or maybe go to your local library if you don't want to if you don't want to sort of spend any money go to your local library and see if it's there but really what I'm trying to say is for me why I haven't kind of gone down the sort of saucy dark hole of um, all her love affairs is I just think it's not important and there's no way that people like the other gentlemen that I've mentioned so far in the series Paul Dranwell and Sir Joseph Devine didn't have their sort of dalliances. I mean, I don't know offhand if they did, but I'm fairly certain there's a lot of scandals going around in the art world and it's just never mentioned. It's not important, but I think because she's a woman, 
people feel that they have to mention it. So if you want to know more about that, then please feel free. Just Google um, Peggy Guggenheim and Jackson Pollock, for example, their kind of affair is very, um, very well documented. Um, but yeah, it's just not important for me, really. But I would just like to end in saying that I think she was an incredible champion for new artists and the avant-garde, the surrealists, and someone who just used their wealth for good and to promote artists. And, and particularly, I think her helping artists escape Europe during World War II is, is an incredible thing and something that needs to be celebrated. Anyway, that is why I think Peggy Guggenheim quite rightly deserves to be part three of my Art of the Deal series. And there you have it, the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed part three of my Art of the Deal series. And I'd be really interested to see if you think Peggy Guggenheim is actually a dealer or a collector. I think she's a very nice marriage of both, in my opinion. But I feel that she really is a dealer with how she promoted and used her wealth to expand the reach of these artists um, throughout the world. So I'd be very interested to hear what you think. You can get in touch by email, which is joesarthistory at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at joesarthistory. As I mentioned in the podcast, any images which I've referred to throughout speaking will be linked in the description below, or you can find them on my Instagram page or via my website as well. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this little chinwag on Peggy Guggenheim and that you've learned a thing or two about this quite incredible figure within the history of art. Finally, my name is Joe McLaughlin. I have been your host and your friendly art historian and I look forward to welcoming you next time on the Joe's Art History Podcast. Until then, keep learning and remember, art is for all.